This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hello and welcome to this AHLA podcast. Uh, My name is Tony Burba, and I'm a partner with Barnes & Thornburg, practicing out of our Chicago, Illinois, and Washington, D.C. offices. My practice uh, centers on healthcare fraud and abuse matters, everything from regulatory counseling to government investigations and uh, trial defense of False Claims Act and criminal matters in the healthcare space. I'm joined today by uh, Gail Jevitt, uh, who is a director at Hyman Phelps and McNamara PC in Washington, D.C. Gail, do you want to give a little bit of background on your practice? Sure, thank you. So I am, as you said, a director in uh, Hyman Phelps and McNamara. We are um, a dedicated food and drug law boutique law firm. Uh, I focus primarily on FDA regulation of medical devices which increasingly includes software. Excellent. And our conversation today is going to be related to clinical decision support tools. Uh, I think we'll cover a number of topics related to CDS uh, in this podcast. Gail and I, along with uh, our colleague, Ted Lachin, who's the uh, chief compliance officer at WakeMed, Health System in North Carolina did a presentation on this during the annual meeting. Uh, Clinical decision support tools outcomes that are designed to assist in the treatment of patients in various ways. Um, These can be anything from computerized alerts and reminders uh, to providers and patients that may be uh, administered through a uh, physician practice or hospital's um, EHR system. Uh, as well as uh, text alerts and email communications uh, to patients, reminding them of, you know, uh, scheduled visits or uh, potential uh, treatments they might need to receive. Um, Typically, these alerts and different um, clinical decision support tools are driven by a decision engine that is uh, in the best cases built on clinical guidelines that are sort of peer-reviewed and generally accepted in the industry. It would be interesting, Gail, to hear from you on sort of how the FDA is thinking about these tools and what some of the recent developments in that area are. Yeah, sure thing. And um, you mentioned um, artificial intelligence, Tony, and I, I think that's really what's gotten FDA's attention. I mean, so we've, you know, software has been part of medical practice in some ways for a couple of decades now, but really the the promise and peril of, of AI is the level of um, sophistication and the, the power of the tool. Essentially, you know, computers are so much better at um, crunching through lots and lots and lots of data and doing it quickly and looking for patterns that we, uh, we humans um, are not so good at and certainly can't do it uh, in, in the, the same um, order of magnitude of time. Uh, so, so the promise is that we can use the software to predict um, the course of uh, a treat, uh, treatment or course of disease, and also potentially to identify it and prevent disease. Um, and we're all, already starting to see clinical decision support 
type uh, tools that uh, that can, for example, help you tr- help a doctor triage a patient. So who's who's probably having um, a stroke and needs to be put to the top of the list? Um, who may be rejecting a kidney that they just received and should get extra monitoring? Um, who's likely to have a recurrence of cancer and should get more aggressive treatment versus who is less likely and then potentially can forego potentially dangerous treatment. So a huge amount of potential, but um, sometimes this uh, there's not necessarily so transparent how the software comes out with its recommendations. So, so FDA's concern, of course, is, is always the patient and whether the information that is being given to the physician um, is is accurate and and has been validated, um, and and so that's where um, clinical decision support comes in, and and the recent developments that uh, that we're we're focused on today come in. So, um, as as I think most people know, the Food and Drug Act is an old old statute, um, more than a century, and and certainly there was nothing like software around in the early 1900s, but yet um, the definition uh, is of a medical device, uh, which is something FDA has authority from Congress to regulate, um, is broad enough to to encompass software and just uh, to give our, our listeners um, a little context, um, a medical device is an instrument, apparatus, implement, machine, contrivance, implant, in vitro reagent, or other similar or related article um, that is intended to diagnose disease or conditions or for use in the cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease. And unlike a drug, it doesn't achieve that effect through chemical action, but rather through physical action um, and does not, um, is not dependent on being metabolized. In the case of, it may not even touch, touch the patient. So a clinical decision support tool can help in diagnosis, treatment, and prevention without ever touching a patient because what it's doing is informing the physician uh, and, and the physician can then use that information for diagnosis or, or treatment or prevention purposes. I'd be interested to hear sort of, you know, from your perspective and in your practice, if you have uh, a client who is operating in this space, how do you advise them on where the line falls as to whether or not they need, may need to approach the FDA about their product versus whether they're just, you know, uh, they're sort of safe in the gray zone as a normal uh, you know, EHR tool or program? Other than uh, flipping a coin and hoping for the best, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. That, so I wish I wish there was a, a magic line uh, that that. But unfortunately, there there's a lot of gray, and and that's not unusual when you have complicated and, and emerging technology. Congress did try to put some bright lines around this uh, back in 2016 with um, the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, so I, I just mentioned the definition of a medical device. Um, Congress. Um, created a carve out for types of software functions that FDA said, hey, these are not medical devices because um, it wanted to streamline the process so that things that really didn't need to go through FDA didn't get caught up um, in unnecessary um, you know, time, delay, expense. Um, so FDA identified a number of types of software functions that 
were not medical devices, many of which FDA wasn't in fact regulating, but just to for you know for clarity. So administrative support, so handling financial records, billing information, um, electronic patient records, as as you just said, transferring, storing, displaying test data or other outputs of medical devices. Um, so so FDA, Congress said, hey, FDA, those are not medical devices, don't regulate them. Where it gets more complicated um, is if the software is also intended to interpret or analyze data from a device, such as a clinical laboratory test um, or, or imaging, you know, MRI, any other type of clinical data that, that medical devices display or uh, output, um, then the question is, um, you know, does FDA regulate that? So FDA, the Congress, the 21st Century Cures Act um, in 2016 um, addressed specifically clinical decision support tools and said some of them are subject to regulation as medical devices and some of them are not. So they, um, Congress established four criteria for trying to distinguish between things FDA should not regulate and things FDA um, should regulate. So um, as a threshold matter, Congress said, this carve out that we're creating does not apply to software that is analyzing images or signals from an in vitro diagnostic or patterns from some other type of medical device. So if you're doing any any software that does any of that is still a traditional medical device. Um, but software that acquires other types of data um, and makes predictions based on it could potentially be exempted from FDA oversight if it meets certain other criteria. Uh, thanks, Gail. Um, I think some other um, interesting areas on this topic um, also relate to things that CMS is, uh, CMS and HHS are regulating. You know, one of the key areas here is is privacy. Um, you know, that's an area that I think, from a compliance standpoint, um, providers should have. Um, should have some uh, understanding and visibility into if they're going to use these tools. Often these tools are driven by third-party companies. Um, you know, some software companies like Epic and the larger EHR providers will have their own tools, but they'll also implement through their system, you know, certain third-party apps that can be utilized. And so there can be a lot of data exchanged between these various entities and it's important for, you know, in particular health systems and large medical practices uh, to be mindful of this when they're putting their business associate agreements in place with uh, their EHR company to understand what other third parties might be uh, obtaining their patient records and data, how they're being protected and those kinds of things. Um, I don't know if you've had any experience with uh, the privacy end of this or, um, you know, or how the data collection and data flow might impact the FDA analysis? So, so I don't think that um, that affects whether it is or is not a device per se, because um, whether something's a device depends on whether it meets the, you know, the statutory device definition. 
of, you know, intended to diagnose, treat, mitigate, cure, prevent disease, et cetera, um, which is, you know, data agnostic. But where it does come up and where FDA regulations should be considered um, is around the permission to use the data um, as part of the research and development of a software tool. Um, so um, FDA has regulations that um, oversee human subjects research, as as does um, you know NIH and other federal agencies, um, and they require informed consent um, not only for um, things you do to a patient, but often when you're using information about a patient to to do research. Uh, so it's important to ensure that if you have a data set um, and and that or um, sam- genetic sample, uh, sorry, so, um, tissue samples, um, when you want to study uh, genetic or other information uh, from a patient, that you have obtained appropriate consent um, in order to use that data. And often also, um, or typically, you would want to have institution. Uh, um, institutional review board oversight of a protocol to um, ensure that the um, data being used has been uh, properly obtained and that subjects understand how it's going to be used. Um, yeah, you know, and I think that there's another issue that uh, has has come up with some of my clients in this space is just um, you know, how do you pay for these tools? Uh, you know, there's a certain amount of research and development required uh, to build out these decision engines and to uh, create these products. I know with some of my clients, the you know, your your end customer for the most part is the health system or um, you know, large physician practice who's going to implement the software to assist them in the treatment of their patients. But oftentimes, you know, those are not high margin uh, institutions. And sometimes there's some difficulty in terms of paying for that development. And so, you know, one of the interesting things that I've seen, and it puts you right at the cross section of the DOJ's enforcement action is, you know, to what extent can other traditional uh, life sciences companies uh, both, you know, device manufacturers and uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, engage in funding of the development of these kinds of tools. Uh, I know on my end, um, you know, it certainly proposes, creates a risky proposition anytime you have a um, company that's, you know, producing a product that's reimbursed by federal payers that's going to be potentially promoted at a higher rate through the use of a CDS tool. And I know the OIG in particular finds that to be uh, a high-risk area. You know, I think when I'm talking to my clients, I, I talk about things like making sure that the, regardless of who's funding the development, you know, you've got to make sure that you uh, have a defensible CDS uh, algorithm that's based on neutral, uh, you know, uh, generally accepted medical practice and that you are not promoting a particular uh, drug device or treatment over uh, others. And so, you know, and, and also avoid things like opioids and, you know, maybe focus on, you know, partnering with companies that 
produce technologies that are generally underutilized or otherwise uh, important to raise awareness of. So things like colorectal cancer screening, certain types of vaccines, um, you know, even uh, using the expertise of particular life science companies and developing tools that can better diagnose, you know, rare and underdiagnosed uh, medical conditions. Uh, obviously, there's always going to be risk, but it seems like those are kind of the uh, cross-section of areas where this tool can be super um, powerful. Uh, I was kind of curious, given your practice, Gail, if you've seen any uh, sort of traditional life sciences companies getting involved in the space, and if so, you know, how, and if not, you know, what you might say to a client who came in and, and wanted to either help fund the development of a CDS tool or perhaps create their own um, module for any HR company to implement. Um, I, I think it's a broad mix of, you know, established companies and, and startups in the space. I do think there are certainly some companies that have never had an FDA regulated product. So it's a bit of a shock to the system to realize that they, you know, they're now um, playing in a regulated environment. Um, but there's also more traditional companies or traditional medical device companies that, um, that see this as a huge opportunity to um, go in a new direction or to um, enhance the, the products that they already are offering to, to patients um, or to, well, to, for, for use in patients. Um, not sure if that uh, answers your your question. Yeah, you know, I I, I think it's really um, try. You know, what I'm I'm trying to focus on here is really sort of the go to market for these types of devices, right? I mean, you're going into a, a pretty competitive area, you know, given the number of EHR companies and the number of sort of uh, companies that are building their business around developing better EHR tools. And, um, you know, given the potentially uh, high value that these tools could have to the life sciences industry, um, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's of interest to me to just know uh, or hear, you know, how some of those companies are thinking about these tools. I just didn't know if you had any, you know, thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just a very diverse space because um, there are just so many different types of, of data that you can apply um, AI to uh, so many different clinical contexts. Um, I don't, this, this may be sort of useful, uh, a useful data point. If you look at the distribution of types of um, AI devices that um, FDA has that have gone through FDA, you'll see that the vast majority, about 75% are in the radiology space. So, you know, and, and maybe that's not surprising um, because there's one thing that, that computers can do much, much better than humans is, is recognize patterns in, in images. So um, many of the applications have been geared around trying to use the software to see better than, um, you know, one one pair of human eyes can see. Uh, so, so that's really, I think, far ahead um, uh, radiology from other potential applications of um, 
AI-based software. How, uh, in your experience, um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, the use of data and, and, and whatnot, but, you know, one of the challenges I know some of my customers in, or some of my uh, clients in this area face is sort of validation of data, ensuring that the data you're getting from the providers is, you know, uh, is, you know, accurate, is um, appropriately um transferred in a way that can be used to, you know, drive the engine. Um, have you had any clients deal with challenges around that type of val data validation issue? Definitely. Um, and, you know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm just a lawyer, uh, but luckily I work with some, some great um, regulatory folks with, with science background who really can get in the weeds of, of helping clients um, understand validation requirements um, and and I think that's also an area where where I think more guidance from FDA would be helpful is um, articulating uh, what exactly one needs to do to make sure that the software is appropriately validated. So you know the the data that you get out of it uh, is is reliable and and um, useful. Um, and then I guess finally on on the provider side, uh, you know obviously the the biggest concern you know, in my experience on the FDA side comes from the developer of the product, but, you know, there can also be some risk in uh, implementing what might be perceived as a, you know, a, an adulterated um, medical device or an unapproved medical device on the part of the provider as well. You know, what are some of the key things that um, providers who are thinking of, you know, signing up and, implementing one of these tools should think about. Understanding from people who work, um, you know, in health systems is they're getting solicitations every day from companies that say, hey, we can um, take these data from your your EHR and, and give you insight into, you know, which patients are at risk of something or which ones you should um, you should prioritize. And, and it really is unclear. Um, to the the folks in charge of making these acquisition decisions, how to how to sort out which uh, which product, um, and and I'm not sure I have um, a great answer. Um, certainly, it always pays to ask the question of you know what what is the FDA status of um, of a company's product. Um, they may say it's not subject to FDA regulation, um, and they should have a be able to articulate why that is. Um, so it sounds like, you know, a credible explanation. If it's not subject to FDA regulation, then um, I think there are other, um, you know, indicia of quality that that you can request or or um, if, if not, I think it would be helpful to have sort of more third party um, imprimaturs that um, can tell you know, quote, good software from bad software. Um, if it is the type of software that FDA should be regulating and the company does not have, um, has not gone through FDA, I think that should certainly be of concern uh, to a health system um, and, and they should, uh, you know, exercise caution. Okay. Um... Are there any other sort of uh, high-level thoughts that you have about this topic in terms of just finishing out the discussion today? 
You know, I, I think it is um, potentially has the potential to really transform healthcare. Um, at the same time, following up on the question you just asked, um, it is going to be hard to know um, in a lot of cases for people who are evaluating these these products how to tell whether a product you know is good it does what it, it says it's going to do and so um from that perspective i you know i think it's uh fda is an important role to play here on the other hand the the challenge is is that this is moving also so quickly and the existing pr- process by which devices go through fda um is you know glacially slow in comparison um which which makes uh you know progress hard so so i don't think we yet have the right balance between um ensuring some level of oversight um but not slowing down the whole enterprise um so i you know i'm hoping that over time uh we we'll, we will get towards that balance Right. Yeah. Buzzwords like AI and and things of that nature that uh, are are not fully understood by regulators yet, and so it's all kind of new and and both exciting and also frustrating. I think for those who want to see these tools develop a bit faster, right? Absolutely. And um, you know, that's I, I would say that's a chronic problem, but I think you really see it emphasized um, with this technology in particular. Um, and I do think there's a, a a role for third parties to play here in setting standards that, um, you know, voluntary standards, but voluntary doesn't always mean voluntary, particularly if you were to tie, you know, reimbursement to it, um, because I don't think that this is something that can be overseen solely by by a federal regulator, um, given, I think, the, the tsunami of... of uh, products and uh that that we're going to see develop over time uh, all right well i think that's a good place to leave the conversation um certainly appreciate everyone listening to the podcast today obviously um gail and i are uh, both happy to continue this conversation with any of the listeners who uh, might be interested in, you know, more details or or have their own thoughts that they'd like to share. So please do feel free to reach out to either of us. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.